Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. Welcome everyone to this, the first episode in 2021, the January episode of Falk Salem Podcast. My name is Cole Van Epps and I'm a paramedic field training officer with Falk Ambulance here in Salem. This month I think we have some great stuff lined up for you, although this is probably the longest episode that we've produced, you might notice that our format is changing just a little bit. From here on out, we're really just going to focus on general emergency medical services training and with introducing topics and discussing things on a regular basis that affect all manners of emergency medical services. But the first message that we have here is from Dr. Clothier, who wanted to weigh in in response to last month's episode in regards to lisinopril and angioedema. The next section we have is our first installment and what might be a recurring topic here over the next few months, discussing different types of documentation, tips and tricks, and this is featuring our own Candy Schlicky, who's our medical documentation specialist and billing specialist here at Falk Ambulance in Salem. The next segment that we have is near and dear to my heart, and it's the ALS topic focusing on carbon monoxide poisoning. And for this particular episode, uh, we sat down and we talked with a local firefighter paramedic from the Salem Fire Department, Mr. Michael Pacheco, who weighs in on that topic. The next segment that we have is brought to you by our own Bianca Paul, another of the field training officers here at Falk, and her piece is entitled, Remember to Talk to Your Patient. The last piece that we have here lined up for you is our next focus section on prescription medications, focusing on Coumadin and also highlighting the differences between anticoagulants and antiplatelets. So again, welcome and thanks for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We wish you the very best in 2021. Hi everybody, Clothier here. I'll admit I had allowed this podcast to fall off my radar. A conversation in the department last week with Dustin got me back on track and I listened to the December episode. I was very honestly crazy impressed with the quality of the product that is being produced for you. And I hope that you will not only listen, but also try to encourage those who don't, and then go the next step and incorporate the learning into your practice. I wanted to throw in my two cents on the topic of angioedema that was so expertly described in the December podcast. The suggestion to intubate early is a good one. But if you have not seen one of these patients, you may not know what early means. Early means before there is any swelling in the airway. Unfortunately, that puts you in a really difficult position. If you have a patient with swollen lips and no airway involvement, who you then intubate in the field, you will be judged for being too quick to drop the tube in a patient who may not have needed it. If you wait until the patient has airway symptoms such as voice changes or complaints of a swollen tongue, To say you will be horrifically disappointed in how your RSI goes is an understatement. Remember that the entire purpose of the laryngoscope blade is to displace the tongue into the bottom of the mouth. Even if you have a great view of the airway with a patient sitting up and awake, you are not likely to be able to displace the tongue in order to pass the tube. 
and our fancy video laryngoscopes do not mitigate that problem. It isn't just a question of being able to see, it is a question of having the space to pass the tube. P.S. The rigid stylet takes up more space than the old one used to anyway. The best way to intubate one of these patients is an awake nasotracheal intubation. That requires at least four things. Ketamine, which you have. A video-guided flexible scope, which you don't, but we could get if we needed them. Someone with great experience in nasotracheal intubations. Much tougher to justify. We rarely ever do this. And finally, someone else who is expertly trained and experienced in not only a crike, but also a tracheostomy. So this is a case where your expertise is to recognize what the patient's trajectory is and act accordingly. You're going to get the appropriate history of either idiopathic angioedema or taking an ACE inhibitor. Remember that lisinopril is most common, but they all end in pril, and there are several of them. And you will recognize the early symptoms of subjective difficulty breathing or swelling or commonly difficulty swallowing. You're going to give the slew of meds we try for this, which may include epinephrine, dexamethasone, diphenhydramine, but you're not going to expect them to do much. And you're going to recognize that this is a code 3 patient who should get a priority arrival to the emergency department. What am I going to do when you arrive? I'm going to recognize that I'm not significantly better than you at a nasotracheal intubation. And while my crike skills are good, my creation of a new trach skills are not. I'm going to call either an airway alert, which gets me all of those extra folks who we're going to need for this, or I'm going to call a code airway, which gets them there faster and books me an OR. Honestly, you guys, I've seen these go both ways. I've seen a patient dropped off by an agency, not ours, who didn't recognize the symptoms and neither did the nurse. By the time I saw the patient 20 minutes later, the cards were already in play. The patient survived but left the hospital with a hole in his neck. My most recent case was about a month ago, and it went the other way, successfully intubated by anesthesia with a video scope. The first case was more exciting, but the second was more satisfying. There's nothing like getting it right, even if all I get to do is make phone calls. So recognize the symptoms, alert the ED, and take the opportunity to use one of those uncommon valid reasons to drive code three. Thanks. Okay, everyone, for this month, uh, we're starting and trying something new here. Today, I've invited our own charting documentation specialist, uh, Candy, to join us and sit down and to start what I'm hoping is gonna be a repetitive cycle in every single upcoming podcast where we take a little bit of time and we talk about the tenets of good charting. We talk about documentation and we break it down into small sections here with good reminders and things that might help us all kind of improve on our charting. So Candy, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on and to talk to us today. Why, good morning, Cole. It's good to be here this morning. I'm awake and alive today and standing upright. Sometimes that's all you can hope for. <laughs> that's right. So Candy, since this is the first time we've had you on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience and you know, how you got into EMS? Uh, well, I started off in the 80s, mind you, as a volunteer with a little fire department that was EMS combined. 
And I kind of went back and forth with it, didn't stick with it. But in the 90s, I went into it full force for a few years and then decided to go ahead and go to college and get my uh, paramedic license. Uh, so I've been doing this full time since the 90s. Uh, love it, still love it. It's just after so many years, the body gives out. <laughs> so I was in, <laughs> I was in yeah. EMT for like seven years and then an intermediate for three years before I decided to become a paramedic. So I know that quality of being a good, strong EMT and how important that EMT basic is to a paramedic. <laughs> How long have you been with Falk here in Salem? Uh, I've been here since 2016. Since 2016. And you've worked as a medic and obviously you have your experiences in EMT. And to kind of bring this back on to topic and everything, Candy, have you ever had a time in your career where you didn't have to write a medical chart after attending on a call? Uh, no, I had to write a chart for every single thing. <laughs> Although even I bet there were some times when you kind of wished we didn't have to write that chart, right? Yeah, even those cancellations, I was like, we were canceled prior to arriving on scene. Sometimes I'll put my location because I want to make sure nobody says you were closer. <laughs> well, I mean, that just kind of goes to, to show you. I mean, this has been around for a while. You know, charting has always been, you know, a, a main staple of emergency medical services. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Like, why is charting so important? Why do we have to do all of this sometimes really mundane work? Well, there are several reasons. Well, number one for what we think is uh, how well we took care of the patient. You know, what a lot of people don't realize, I get several requests during the week for patient reports from Salem Hospital. Even though they've received them through uh, fax, they request those same reports again. So how you document, the doctors are reviewing all this. Did you ask the certain questions? How was your uh, assessment of this patient? Yeah, uh, so that, that kind of goes into that tenet of continuity of care, where if we're trying to figure out when somebody's symptoms started, or if we're trying to determine how long maybe they were suffering with something, or if maybe they were having some of this event that now they're seeing at the hospital before when we were with them, all of that stuff all comes together in the patient's chart, right? And on like the ER physician side or the internalist side, they can see what the patient's primary care physician is saying. They can see what the patient's ER uh, doctor was saying. And standing right there next to all of that is our EMS report. That is telling our side of things, like what the patient said and what they told us and how it compares to all those other narratives, right? That's what you're saying is they're putting it all together in like one big chart. Exactly. So if we've got things missing, they're going to be calling us up and saying, hey, this is what we have on this patient, but your medic said otherwise. So it's important to put everything in there so it's clear to the doctors or, or even the patient himself when they request records. Some of the patients do request their records. I mean, you're, you're talking about just making sure that is there to show that we took good care of this patient. It's also a good record that shows what we did and how we did it. And even if we're talking about something as simple as, you know, showing what kind of an impact that EMS might have in general, 
we could start at like the 10 foot view with that patient and say, you know, this patient here received this treatment on this day and it made their life better or it changed them or it saved their life or, you know, they received these therapies. But if we go up to that 1000 foot view and we take all of those bits of information from our region and we, you know, scrub the data down, Oregon Health Authority looks at that data and they say, in general, the populace are inside of Salem and outside of Salem. This is how we're treating chest pain patients. So they look at all chest pain calls, obviously scrubbed for HIPAA information, of course. But your chart is another drop in the bucket there as well, saying on this day, we saw a 30-year-old male who was having chest pain, and this is what we did for it. And they can look and see if it's even congruent with regional or national standard of care, are we actually meeting that standard of care? And are these charts and these documents, they're not even necessarily just going to like medical providers, they're going to analysts, they're going to local health authorities that look for trends. Exactly, and a lot of them do go to American Heart Association too, because they're studying and they're checking all the uh, chest pains, strokes, and things like that to help improve their standard of care for AHA. I wanna talk about this stuff a lot more, but uh, I definitely wanna get us to our focus subject here for this particular month. And maybe we can continue to extrapolate on this a little bit more, you know, coming up next month as well. What I really wanted to try to focus on here today, since there's so many different kind of charting pieces of software out there, and there's lots of different ways to try to address this, what kind of a narrative format does Falk use here? Uh, right now, we are using the SOAP format, which I was used to using, but I've had to do two other formats prior to this also. Uh, <laughs> so right now we are using the SOAP, Subjective, Objective, Assessment, and Plan in our uh, documentation. And I believe the Salem Fire Department uses it, Marion County Fire Department uses it. What's the, the benefit of using a, a mnemonic like SOAP versus just using like a narrative style chart? You know, chapter one, I arrive on scene, sort of a, sort of a narrative I, approach. Uh, well, most of the hospitals throughout the U.S. use a SOAP format in their documentation. In fact, that's where this was started. It wasn't started at EMS. So it breaks it down into different areas of how you did this and the subjective part, what you see, what you heard when you arrived on scene with the patient. And then the O is for the assessment, the objective, what you see of the patient and your assessment of the patient of that moment. And that's how the hospitals do this. So they can quickly read it. And I think it's more easier for them too, but for us as well, they can see it, it's broken down. They know it, they understand it. So it makes finding the information they're looking for a little easier. The other yes. thing I think about with like SOAP uh, style narratives, and you were talking about the difference between subjective and objective, and it's really good to separate them out. If I only talked about what the patient said and what the patient reported as being their emergency versus what I actually observed to be their emergency. Sometimes those things are different. Sometimes those things are at odds with one another. The patient is saying, help, I'm on fire. And objectively, from my point of view, the patient is not on fire. 
They are currently sitting in the chair, smiling, texting on their phone. But the patient reports to me, hey, my chief complaint is I'm on fire. But my objective point of view says otherwise, or my objective point of view is contradictory. That is correct. And I've had several patients do that. This was their chief complaint. Well, I've been having seizures. I feel one coming on and then I observe them having a great looking seizure. And I tell them, could you straighten out your arm for the IV? And in the middle of their seizure, they're able to straighten out that arm for me. So <laughs> that's a, that's my objective. I'm observing patient is able to follow commands during his seizure. <laughs> and the other thing that I, I would also encourage people to remember is that it's cumulative over the entire call. Sometimes I get in my brain and I'm like, no, the S section is only what happened before I got there. As I was arriving on scene, what was initially reported, bystanders observed or the family observed or what their physician was telling me. But 45 minutes into the call, the patient may develop something that now they're reporting. Their chest pain has now radiated to their right knee. I can put all that into my S section and my S section doesn't have to be strictly tied to a timeline unless the development of those symptoms is important to, to kind of document. So as we're asking questions over the course of the call, I'm developing my whole S section about, you know, whether or not they were nauseous or whether or not they had chest pain or something else. Actually, none of the soap is tied to a timeline except for the P. The P actually has to be in order. Uh, the P is where you started your plan of treatment and it has to be literally in order. It can't just be vitals, IV, fluids. They have to be in order. You know, you have to prove your plan. Did you do it in order chronologically? But the SO and A, well, A, it's, I mean, that's just what your possible diagnosis of the patient is and why they're going to the hospital but the others are not chronological. Are there any other tips that you have or what kind of things do you run into when you're auditing charts and you're looking at the S section? What are some common things that you're coaching individuals to correct if you had to boil them down to a couple? Uh, one of the things I'm seeing quite a bit of lately is we're putting, uh, we're typing patient is at baseline period. Okay, that's actually just half a thought. You have not completed that sentence. How do you know this patient is at baseline? Is that your brother, sister? Are you spending a lot of time with this patient that you know this? And now from one perspective, um, if that was my narrative and I was going back and reading my narrative, um, maybe this is part of like a legal case or something like that. And I'm, I'm just coming from my perspective here. Um, that to me might send me a message saying that after doing all my Sherlock Holmesing on the call, the patient is at their baseline and I'm writing myself a note there in that narrative to remind myself that. But when I change that perspective to a third party, someone who doesn't know this person from the next person walking down the road and we say that thing of this patient is at baseline without any sort of supporting pieces, well, who is saying they're at baseline? Who is justifying that based upon like what's there? Who are we comparing that to? And then I, I, just as you said that, I sat here 
in this chair, I'm like, wow, I have so many questions about what that means. Exactly. So to clarify it, you need to put patient is at baseline as stated by the RN caretaker and you want to put quotes around it because that's the caretaker saying that because as far as I know, you're the one that knows this person really well. You must be spending a lot of time with this person and that's how you know they're at baseline. <laughs> so you need to prove who knows that this patient is at baseline. And then I would also even put down that by writing patient is at baseline, that really doesn't take care of our pertinent negatives because it doesn't actually paint the picture of what you checked for or what you actually assessed. You know, if this patient is at baseline and then, you know, we're obviously called there for something, you know, they're at baseline for what? Their mentation, their physical activity level, their, you know, their ability to eat ice cream, you know, whatever their, whatever the baseline is, you know, it's so generic, it leaves so many questions. Yeah, exactly. Patient is at baseline for physical weakness on the left side uh, from a previous old previous old stroke. Or so when uh, you assess a patient, well, right now you're assessing him for some shortness of breath, but he has had a stroke that's also not uh, a normal. I mean, it's normal for him, but it's not normal for a normal person. So. You, you still got to put an old stroke. What other things specific to the S section are you seeing that you're coaching people with? You know, uh, a lot of people are leaving out their pertinent negatives. Uh, this tells me if you really assess this patient, you might find some other things wrong with this patient. You know, the patient does deny nausea, vomiting and diarrhea today or this past week. Is he having any ringing of the ears, tinnitus today? Or is it worse today? We're missing those pertinent negatives. Even though we might do the associated signs and symptoms, you still need to ask those questions. You still need to find out if there's something different with this patient. Because the older we get, we don't realize, because they're not, people are not in the medical profession, we don't realize this is not part of getting old. This is abnormal. So it's important to ask those. Uh, any visual problems out of the ordinary? Because many of us wear glasses. Uh, are you feeling some little chest discomfort or pain? Or, you know, how's your urine output? One of the things people miss a lot of is bowel movements. Uh, you know, the guy with the chest pain had a syncopal episode. Did you ask them about their bowel movements? Cause that can affect, cause that's really related a lot to chest pain and people don't realize that. Uh, oh, I've had black tarry stools. Oh, you've got a bleed. Mm, this is why your heart is beating incorrectly. <laughs> and not only that, sometimes, you know, the patient called us because they're having complaint but we'll end up uncovering other things that they didn't want to share that they initially didn't think that they should be sharing that trumps the initial complaint that they had or they even describe it a little differently i know that one of the questions i have in my repertoire simply because i've been burned by it a couple of times is hey are you having any chest pain okay come to find out later that they were not having pain they were having pressure or they were having this fullness in their chest or they were having palpitations. And, and that happens a lot because I was burned on that same thing too. So I've learned 
the older they get, it's not so much pain, it's a discomfort. So I always put denies chest pain or discomfort yeah. slash comfort. Uh, because most of them, well, I'm not having pain, but it doesn't feel right. Okay, let's go. Let, let's go from here. What does it feel like? <laughs> I also find that if I, if I tried to generalize it too much, where I just say, you know, hey, are you having any pain anywhere in your body? Generally speaking, their resounding answer is no. But if you really get down to specifics and they start doing that like body scan with their mind and trying to figure out, well, actually, now that you say that, I actually do have some discomfort in this area or I have this weird sensation here. But if the initial question is just, you know, totally, hey, from top to bottom, from head to toe, are you having any pain anywhere in your body? A lot of times they just, nah, I'm not having any problems or nothing outside of the of ordinary. It's like that, and, and we've had that, you know, well, you know, I always have left shoulder pain. You know, I have arthritis. Well, let's go ahead and do this. Something, something's different or you wouldn't have called us. So I'll still, let's do some rule outs and you find out this patient's actually having a STEMI. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, you have to do these things to rule them out and it's important. Uh, some of the things I'm still missing is the OPQRST for these patients that are having chest pain. They'll put pain level, they'll put time that it's starting, but they're not identifying, you know, does anything make it feel better or worse? Does it feel heavy or is it a stabbing pain? Is it constant? Does it come and go? Does it radiate? We're missing those details in many charts right now. So you've got to cover yourself because not only this, okay, someone decides to sue you, then you're in for some fun. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of going back to the OPQRST thing, another good reminder about that is, you know, like in school, they teach you to learn the acronyms SAMPLE and OPQRST, you know, so signs and symptoms, allergies, medications, past medical history, last oral intake and events leading up to, right? And then they, they make you memorize this OPQRST, onset, provokes, quality, radiating, you know, the severity and the time of all that to finish off that acronym. Uh, the point of the matter is though, is that they do a poor job sometimes of describing that you can have a sample history, that's usually one per patient. OPQRST is one per complaint, where if you're having chest pain, shortness of breath, and nausea, vomiting, that's actually three OPQRSTs, one for each of those complaints. And you can definitely narrow those down a little bit. You can definitely be a lot more targeted with how you're asking those questions and determining that. But quite often, all of those different complaints can have different onset times or things that make them worse or things that make them better. Or how bad is this in comparison to other things? What does this pain actually do? Does it radiate to this other one? Is this other one a result of that initial pain? And that all feeds into differential diagnoses and that presentation that allows us to make clinical diagnoses of what's going on. And physicians use this all the time. Like they use this to make clinical diagnoses based on what the patient is complaining of, how those symptoms progressed, and they plug this into this uh, difference engine that they've been learning inside of their brain that tells them, nope, this actually looks like a gallbladder. Um, nope, this looks like a STEMI. This looks like pneumonia. Like there's all kinds of different presentations with that, but it all comes back to that OPQRST. 
That's really what helps us to determine coming up with differential diagnoses. Good example, I had a female patient because females can typically be a little different. She had been vomiting for the past three months. Couldn't find out, no food poisoning. They kept checking her for that, checking her for that. It was actually cardiac related. So her vomiting started three months ago, but her chest pain didn't start till this past week. That's a great example because in your chart then, you would be putting down, you know, generically, patient is complaining of chest pain, patient is complaining of nausea. But if I take that one step further and I put down a little bit of OPQRST information on each one of those complaints, patient is complaining of chest pain that started today. Patient is also complaining of nausea and vomiting that started three months ago. That paints a whole different picture when I go back in and I read that narrative as a provider or as somebody who has no idea who this patient is and I read that, that immediately lets me know that there's a chronic side to this and now there's a new development and if those two are related, that shows me a negative progression in a patient's trend. And that yeah. makes me hyper suspicious of we need to do all the tests. We need to do all the things to try to figure out why is this patient continuing to deteriorate? Um, Candy, do you have any other tips or do you have any other advice? So I'll make sure you, you know, when you're asking uh, the bystanders, make sure you get the main person that knows the most about the patient because everybody has an explanation. So you want to be exact, you know, the father of the patient states and then quotation marks. Let's see. And let's definitely hit those pertinent negatives also, not just your associated signs and symptoms. Yeah. That's a big thing. You know, it tells me you did a good assessment of your patient. It tells the doctor, it tells the court, it tells the patient you did a good assessment. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Candy, for taking the time and talking about documentation. All right. Talk to you later. Have a good one. Be safe out there, everyone. For this month's ALS topic, I chose to discuss carbon monoxide poisonings. Recently, I personally lost two friends of mine to a tragic accident involving CO poisoning at home. What's worse is that they were both firefighters. I knew them both very well. I worked with them for years. And these folks were smart, really smart. They were the best kind of people that you would want to be around. And they knew about things like this. And they had even worked in the community to try to prevent these sorts of things. And the circumstances of their deaths hit me really hard. It was just a bad mistake. And I'll forever miss them both. And as I've been coping with this loss, I found myself looking at my own house and my kids and my wife and my family and looking to see what I could do to double check against my own risks for CO poisoning at home. And it got me looking into detectors and reading the little packet insert in the detector and figuring out, is this where I needed it in my home? And it snowballed into more and more questions. As a medic, I've worked with patients in the field who have had you know, carbon monoxide poisoning with something like this and it hits so close to home, I looked at it in a different light. I didn't want to get something like this wrong and I definitely wanted to make sure that I had more information. So I started doing some research and I realized that you know, this is probably a pretty common topic that maybe a lot of people have questions about or who might want some more information about. And so I hoped that maybe perhaps in a way 
I could use this as a way to honor Cody and Shelby's memory and to help spread awareness and knowledge about carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, to get that information out there into the community. You know, so I did a variety of things. Not only did I refresh my own education about carbon monoxide and do, did a little research kind of looking into things like that, I've reached out to Dr. Clothier for some advice about you know what happens when we take patients to the hospital and how those things are treated and looking into things like hyperbaric chamber oxygenation uh, and how that affects carbon monoxide. And also I, I reached out to Salem Fire Department, to our partners there, and I set up some time to interview uh, one of their hazmat technicians, um, a firefighter paramedic that you know we all work with here in the field in Salem, really great guy, uh, to share some of his experience and help raise that awareness even from the expert side, you know, for the people who come and deal with these IDLH environments um, and help to prevent them in the community, what advice might they have for everyone? So carbon monoxide, as the name suggests, consists of one carbon atom and one oxygen atom mono being the prefix for monoxide, versus carbon dioxide, which is a single carbon atom with two oxygen atoms bonded to it. This one is CO versus CO2. And sometimes people use those interchangeably, you know, but this is CO, this is carbon monoxide. That's what we're dealing with here. Carbon dioxide is what we typically breathe out as part of cellular respiration. Carbon monoxide is different and it's a byproduct of oxidative sort of uh, processes where carbon is burned and it actually becomes a byproduct of that. But first, you know, it was initially studied by Aristotle, the famous philosopher, in 384 BC. He documents in some of the first recorded ever uh, studies about carbon monoxide that burning coals, like charcoal, produced toxic fumes. And this was actually used as an ancient method of execution. Um, they would shut a criminal inside of a bathing room, so a room that had relatively uh, low ventilation, with smoldering coals inside of it as well. And sometime after that, this person would uh, be found to be dead. Um, that was a, an ancient form of execution. And Aristotle looked at this and said that this must be some sort of a byproduct of this combustion that's occurring. Um, and initially uh, had done some preemptive chemical analysis and noticed that carbon monoxide actually burns blue. And he thought initially that maybe by burning this charcoal that it was actually producing like a hydrogen gas. It was later on, uh, after more studies were done, it was actually determined to be you know, an entirely different substance. But carbon monoxide is a colorless, odorless, and tasteless flammable gas that is slightly less dense than air meaning that it will rise in an oxygen environment. It is toxic to animals that use hemoglobin as an oxygen carrier when encountered in concentrations above 35 parts per million in the atmosphere. And for comparison, the Earth's atmosphere has a carbon monoxide concentration naturally about 80 parts per billion. So, a couple of orders of magnitude greater than that, it's toxic at 35 parts per million. Carbon monoxide is produced from the partial oxidation of carbon-containing compounds. It forms where there is not enough oxygen to produce carbon dioxide or CO2, such as when operating a stove or an internal combustion engine in an enclosed space. In the presence of oxygen, carbon monoxide burns with a blue flame, 
Miners often referred to carbon monoxide as white damp, or the silent killer. It's called damp because of the German word dampf actually means vapor. It can be found in confined spaces with poor ventilation in both surface mines and underground mines. The most common sources of carbon monoxide in mining operations are the internal combustion engines and explosives used to mine. However, in coal mines, carbon monoxide can also be found in unexpected places due to the low temperature oxidation point of the charcoal itself. It is also highly flammable and explosive in mixtures with air between 12.5 and 74%, with the most explosive concentration being 29% carbon monoxide. Another thing is, is that carbon monoxide won't extinguish flames that it happens to be in contact with, whereas carbon dioxide is actually smothering for a fire. Carbon monoxide will potentiate combustion in an area. Think about that CO2 extinguisher. That uses carbon dioxide to extinguish a flame. Carbon monoxide will actually potentiate those flames. It is therefore one of the most dangerous gases to be found in a mine and one of the most difficult to detect. On an interesting side note, canaries, like the bird, a canary, were iconically used in coal mines to detect the presence of carbon monoxide. The bird's rapid breathing rate, small size, and high metabolism compared to miners meant that the birds would become ill and die before the miners might actually become symptomatic, and therefore would give the miners some idea that they were going into a dangerous environment and gave them a chance to act and to escape. In closed environments, the concentration of carbon monoxide can easily rise to lethal levels. According to the Florida Department of Health, Every year, more than 500 Americans die from accidental exposure and thousands more across the U.S. require emergency medical care for non-fatal carbon monoxide poisoning. These products include manufacturing fuel burning appliances such as furnaces, ranges, water heaters, and gas and kerosene room heaters. Also, engine-powered equipment such as portable generators, fireplaces, and charcoal that is burned inside of homes and in other enclosed areas all produce carbon monoxide. The American Association of Poison Control Centers reported 15,769 cases of carbon monoxide poisoning resulting in 39 deaths in 2007. In 2005 were reported 94 generator related carbon monoxide poisoning deaths and 47 of these deaths were known to have occurred during the specific power outages during the severe weather of Hurricane Katrina. Still others died from carbon monoxide poisoning by non-consumer products, such as cars left running in, in attached garages. During 2010 to 2015, a total of 2,244 deaths resulted from unintentional carbon monoxide poisoning, with the highest number of deaths each year occurring in the winter months. More deaths associated with Hurricane Laura were caused by the improper use of portable generators than the storm itself. This was in an article on the National Public Radio. Eight of the 15 hurricane-related deaths confirmed by the Louisiana Department of Health were attributed to carbon monoxide poisoning from portable generators being used, which can provide life-saving power in the emergency situations, but if used incorrectly, ended up causing carbon monoxide poisoning. 
Carbon monoxide is colorless, odorless, and tasteless, and it's highly toxic. It combines with the hemoglobin to produce carboxyhemoglobin, and it binds to the site in the hemoglobin that normally carries oxygen, and it leaves it ineffective. In fact, its affinity is much higher than that of oxygen, and not only does it bind it there, it hogs that affinity site. It takes it over. It actually fights to prevent oxygen from bonding there. Concentrations as low as 667 parts per million may cause up to 50% of the body's hemoglobin to convert to carboxyhemoglobin. A level of 50% carboxyhemoglobin may result in seizures, coma, and fatality. For more insight in the subject, I sat down and interviewed a local firefighter paramedic and hazmat technician with the Salem Fire Department, Firefighter Michael Pacheco. Thank you so much for joining us here today, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us about uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, absolutely. So uh, my name is Michael Pacheco. I currently work for Salem Fire. Uh, I am a engineer paramedic, which means it's just a fancy word for I drive the truck around. Uh, and then I, I also am a hazmat technician for the state of Oregon. Um, I've been in the fire service for the past 15 years uh, and on the hazmat team for the past four for the state of Oregon. Throughout my career, I've responded to hundreds, if not thousands of calls uh, for all kinds of hazards from structure fires to heart attacks, uh, everything in between. Where should these CO detectors be located? Should they be on the ground level? Should they be up high? Like, should they be on the ceiling? So uh, so CO is, is kind of tricky. So it does rise, but it also lingers. And the EPA recommends that you place your CO detectors at about knee height around where the lowest socket's gonna be on your house. But it needs to be placed near sleeping areas. It needs to be placed where it's not gonna collect dust or debris or say dog hair is going to get into it or even stuff from the outside. Also, it needs to be placed on each floor of your home. So, and that's including the basement, the first story, second story, or wherever the living quarters are going to be. Well, it's something else that spurred me on this is I went home and I started looking at my own detection, right? And I started realizing, first off, my detector's in the wrong place. And then not only that, but there's places that you can put it where you're going to get false readings. And then not only that, but I needed this in a place farther down the hallway towards the bedrooms and more towards like the living areas, right? And another thing that happens is that people will, once they get annoyed by these things, just the smoke detectors, uh, they, they usually pull them down and put them in the drawer somewhere and forget to put them back on, which can, which can uh, sneak up on you. Uh, and also some kids will, if they have problems with their Xbox or PlayStation controllers, even the TV remote, will pull the battery out of them uh, out of the CO detector, since it's the thing that they can reach at and they know a battery's in it, because they've seen mom and dad change them out every once, a, every once in so often, that they'll pull it out and use it as whatever they need it for. And then mom and dad might not even know that the battery's missing out of them. Or like you go to a friend's house and you're there for, I don't know, an hour and you keep hearing the chirp. Uh, so I had an experience with my grandparents that they thought it was a bird I was just chirping outside and they just thought, oh, the bird is back or, you know, and it would, it would go off and on uh, for a while whenever it would get juice when it wasn't, when it wasn't getting juice and uh, they were hard of hearing and they just didn't even think about it because they haven't replaced the smoke detectors in like, like 15 years. And they're like, oh yeah, that's just the bird. I'm like, uh, no, uh, grandma, uh, it's actually a smoke detector. Now smoke detectors, those are going to be the ceiling and smoke detectors are different than CO detectors, right? Absolutely. So. Uh, 
they're 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 different, but they are the same in in the sense of they're going to detect a hazard. But a CO detector is going to measure parts per million in your home and will monitor over about a three and a half hour span. And if it's above the 50 parts per million, it will start alarming. Now, also, if you have a continuous exposure over. Uh, uh, about eight minutes over 400 parts per million. That's kind of where the lethal dose is. Uh, it will also alarm as well. Okay. All right. And now those two detectors, they're different. They're going to be located in different places. So if I'm going through my house and I'm doing an inventory of the kind of hazard detection that I have in my house for safety, um, I either need to have a combination smoke detector, CO detector. Is that even a thing? So, yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there, there are quite a few different makes and models out there. I mean, you can pick these things up at Home, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, Ace Hardware, anywhere. There's kind of a, a hardware store uh, and you have either a smoke detector or a CO detector or a combination detector. Uh, I always like to think that uh, having uh, one detector for one job is the best. So uh, with with your detectors in your home, you're going to have your smoke detector, which is going to be mounted up high uh, above uh, each living space and in each room, typically. And then a CO detector, which would be placed on each floor of your home about knee height, uh, about one to two feet above the ground where, where the CO is going to be lingering. Gotcha. So I was looking at this and I was kind of reading the little pamphlet that came with this uh, CO detector that I had. Um, it was talking about evacuation plans and it was talking about, you know, what do you do when you hear this sort of stuff and to come up with a plan as a family, what's going to be our, you know, like our evacuation plan. Absolutely. So uh, I, I will tell you this, that responding to mo uh, multiple calls a year on this uh, with Salem Fire is that uh, more than likely it's going to be a battery issue. But that battery issue uh, cannot be mistaken as a real exposure. So if you do have a chirping or alarming CO detector, it's best that you do evacuate the home, uh, open up the windows and doors so you have good ventilations as you leave the residence and activate your 911 system. And uh, depending on who responds to your home uh, and their capabilities, they should be able to uh, rule out the um, the, the hazard is if it's a battery issue, the, the fire department and or whoever responds to you should have a, a meter of some kind or a detector uh, off their engine and or truck company. And they can they can tell you if there if there's actually CO in the building or it could be just a battery issue. I got you. Now, that's something else that's probably really important to point out is that like natural gas emergencies and CO are different. Right, natural gas, rotten egg smell, it, they actually add the methyl mercaptan to it. It alerts you that there's this explosive gas or flammable gas in the area. CO, can't smell it, odorless, right? I might have people that are sick, but if I enter the structure, if I need to be certain of wherever I'm going. Uh, that is 100% correct. And so for us, when we go into any of these kind of uh, atmospheres, it could be an IDLH atmosphere. So where it could be hazardous to us, we're gonna wear our SCBAs our, for our respiratory protection. Cause we can't get sick and we don't wanna be exposed to this. Carbon monoxide is known as the silent killer. Uh, and what happens is that because our human senses can't smell it, see it or detect it, uh, we become very, uh, nonchalantly uh, lazy with it and we don't really recognize some of the hazards that we have in our everyday lives such as like our automobiles or gas appliances or anything that actually uses fuel that will emit carbon so like generators or your fireplace and CO is is a product of incomplete combustion so 
anything that catches on fire, like plastics or wood or synthetic materials or even petroleum-based, they will emit CO. You know, so I think things like that are going to be important because I think it's going to resonate with people. It's that good sort of like reminder. It's the winter months, your furnaces are on, the animals move in, they make nests inside of like the vent flue and, and things that are supposed to normally vent out. Or um, if you're firing up the fireplace for the first time in a long time and you haven't had it serviced and that creosote's in there, it's built up or you got something that made a nest or something's broken. So that's not venting, that sort of stuff. Right. And uh, you'd be, you you'd be surprised to see how many responses we go to. And this is from me working in Arizona and from here in Oregon, that uh, people forget to open the flue or the damper so the house fills up with smoke and or they shut the damper off too quickly to where their fireplaces, uh, even though the fire is out, uh, just like an instruction fire, those ashes are sort of emitting CO and they if, shut the flue because they don't want water getting it, but they don't want or they don't want uh, animals getting in, so uh, or wind or whatever, and they shut the flu in it, and that stuff is still filling up your house, you know? Yeah. And they go to sleep and they're, oh, the fire's out, we're good. Well, as you well know, that, that might be a, a fatal mistake. Yeah. So, and, and you see this a lot with also with like big snowstorms or heavy snowfall, where people will uh, ha- have their vents clogged up by uh, by either debris or by the snow, where it's not venting properly, and people where they had furnaces in their basement, well, that furnace is, is still going and it's going to be cranked up higher than usual. So people upstairs on the second or third or fifth floor of the of, of their apartment building or wherever they're at or even their in their home are going to get the highest doses of the CO and what people don't think they think that um, that one detector will probably be the best for the house well they need one per floor and one per sleeping area so you could have multiple CO detectors throughout the home and hopefully one of those are going to pick those up but at the same time people people think that just the one on their on their on the first floor just, is going to do just fine now as a hazmat tech or even as a firefighter the tones drop and dispatch gets on the radio and they say you know hey you're responding to a possible carbon monoxide alarm or a possible carbon monoxide exposure at a residence now, what kind of things are going through your mind as you're going to that call uh, yeah, so that's a great question. So a few things that uh, when the tones go off, we're like, okay, it's a, the CO uh, call, which are usually not the, the funnest calls, but the some, sometimes the most technical calls that we go on because we have to find the source of the CO. So as me as a uh, hazmat tech or as, as an engineer, I'm thinking of one, exposure time, two, where is it coming from, and three, uh, what can I do to either vent the structure or eliminate the hazard? So I know for as a hazmat tech, I have different tools to be able to detect CO. One is going to be our four gas meter that we keep on our hazmat rig and also on our, on our uh, ladder companies that we have here. And the four gas meter, they, they do a great job. They sniff out O2 levels, uh, CO levels, uh, hydrogen sulfide levels, and kind of the upper and lower exposable limit of different gases that could be in the structure. The first thing that comes to my mind is this is a rescue situation. And then not only that, you know, I start thinking about what National Registry is and like how many patients do we have? And you said this uh, um, a little bit about multifamily structures, like an apartment building that shares ventilation or they share air volume. I might have one person in an apartment with that headache that calls 911 saying, I don't feel good. I got nausea, I got a headache, I don't, this sort of thing. When we start recognizing this as a, as a potential IDLH, it may not even be their unit that's causing it. It may be the unit below them. We 
you're 100% right. So with those bigger structures, even multifamily dwellings, if they have some kind of CO problem, the telltale sign is doing symptoms with a patient, but you could have had someone that ignored the symptoms or didn't feel the uh, feel the symptoms before it was too late. So you could have the latter effect where you could have as if someone experiencing nausea or fatigue or shortness of breath, but you could actually have fatalities already in the structure. And that is kind of the worst case scenario, but but that's why it's important to be educated on these different things and, and, and on the equipment and or the uh, maintenance of the, uh, uh, of the things inside the building that can cause them CO poisoning. Gotcha. Uh, kind of shifting gears on over towards the structure fire sort of an atmosphere. In structure fires, CO is going to be a part of that because we're dealing with the combustion of carbon. Um, one of the dangers of structure fires is that patients that are attempting to escape or people that are attempting to go into that environment that are not protected by SCBA, one of the biggest dangers, even if they're crawling on the floor, even if they're away from the heat, even if they're away from the actual combustion zone, is that CO in the structure, right? Uh, yes, 100% correct. So uh, as we like to say in the fire service, it's not your daddy's fire anymore. So in all these people's home, we have so much fuel loading with these uh, with these carbon-based materials of plastics and synthetics that they once they catch on fire, they will start emitting all kinds of toxic gases of hydrogen cyanide, CO, and a multitude of, uh, of different gases. And what people don't understand is that even uh, it, typically in fires, the fatalities don't come from flame impingement. It's usually from the superheated gases and or the poisonous gases being emitted by the smoke or by the, the carbon-based items that are on fire. So uh, people that are trapped in fires that we rescue are usually have CO poisoning. People that have tried to escape themselves or crawl, even if you crawl low underneath the smoke, as you touched on, you're still breathing in that uh, smoke-filled atmosphere. Some uh, of a structure firefighters see CO poisoning is during uh, overhaul. Typically, we will monitor uh, the gases and the atmosphere during overhaul. Overhaul is after the fires. We have eliminated the uh, the flames and and we have put out the fire. We have to go through overhaul and look for say hidden fires or stuff that might not be put out completely to where everything is still off gassing in the structure and or we have to monitor for parts per million uh, before we can actually take the respirators off. Where back in the day that we would take the respirator off and the SCBA off after the fire's out, but we started breathing in there with that toxic fumes or that CO that is being produced by the, what is left over of the fire. And this isn't even just limited to like structure fire too. This is like confined space or like trench rescue where you end up getting below ground you kind of end up getting into a place where either you have displacement of oxygen or you have displacement of something by a heavier gas it looks clear it looks like there's you know breathable air down there but you get that gas detector down into the area where this person was or you might end up finding these noxious gases inside of there like co that affected the person in the trench or affected the person underground uh, these things happen all the time where everyday people that are doing this their typical job that might not be trained up for co or recognizing uh the uh, dangers of confined space will experience they might think of it as they were kind of like the canary if you will they will go down there and they will try to do their job and they'll pass out and or experience symptoms and they don't know what they're experiencing but as more people try to help those people there and then they get exposed and then they get exposed and you know you eventually have the canary effect where back in the day 
the miners would keep the little canary in their helmets and whenever that canary died that was when they knew that the atmosphere was deadly inside the mine so yeah. so that, i think that's kind of the re- uh, main reason for this for this podcast is that to, to get that information out to us exactly you know, so to kind of summarize you know the the main goal out of all this is detection and your initial pre-alert system to be able to know it's dangerous for me to be in here i need to escape so that's either because of a fire or an unseen combustive source or poor ventilation whatever it is so we get our detectors inside of there that alert us that we need to evacuate ourselves our family our patients or whatever it is from this environment second is going to be the responders that come on scene they're going to use that as information the co detectors going off in the house IDLH for us, we're going to protect ourselves on the way in. And then like you were saying, try to determine where it is, mitigate the risk, figure out if there's any sort of spread. And then also simultaneously, the rescue, the treatment of the patients and try to figure out where they're going to go. And then from that point on, it's going to be that taking those patients and taking them down the patient treatment side, where they're going to have hours, if not days of recovery. Absolutely. And I think with, uh, with what you've already explained uh, in your podcast about the Finley on how uh, CO affects hemoglobin and how things are produced at CO. I think that this is going to be a well-rounded uh, piece. So uh, I really appreciate your time, Mike. Thanks for joining us on this and offering your expertise on it, man. And uh, thank you again for what you do. This is really hard times right now, but uh, you know, I really respect what you guys do and I want you guys to be safe out there. Absolutely. And just make sure you spade and neuter your pets. <laughs> the Bob Barker treatment. Okay. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Exposures occur when carbon monoxide is ventilated into a person's body. Remember, ventilation is different than respiration. Respiration is actually the exchange of oxygen being converted on over into carbon dioxide, eventually traveling back to the lungs and being allowed to be ventilated back out. Ventilation is actually the exchange of gas into the lungs and back out of the lungs. So exposures occur when carbon monoxide is ventilated into a person's body. And then it binds to those myoglobin and the mitochondrial cytochrome oxidase. Clinical diagnosis of acute carbon monoxide poisoning should be confirmed by demonstrating an elevated level of carboxyhemoglobin in the patient's bloodstream by the use of a spectrophotometric measurement device or a blood gas reading. This is available at hospitals with full lab capabilities. You can use either arterial or venous blood to perform this test. And because this testing is so complicated, it's going to be rare to find such analysis capabilities in a clinic or an office setting. The most common symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning may resemble other types of poisonings and infections, including symptoms such as a headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, fatigue, and a feeling of profound weakness. Affected families often believe that they're victims of food poisoning. Infants may be irritable and feed poorly, which may initially be interpreted as they're coming down with a cold or they've caught something and it's just starting to develop. Neurologic signs include confusion, disorientation, visual disturbance, and syncope and seizures, which can be attributed to everything from strokes to ongoing uh, metabolic issues or electrolyte disturbances. Some descriptions of carbon monoxide poisoning include retinal hemorrhaging and abnormal cherry red hue to the skin. In most clinical diagnoses, these signs are seldom noticed, however. 
One difficulty with the usefulness of this cherry red effect that occurs in the skin is that it masks what would otherwise be an unhealthy appearance. Think that pale, cool, diaphoretic, cyanotic appearance. This patient appears pink. They might still be cool to the touch. They may look like they're struggling, but they appear to be oxygenating well. And since the chief effect of removing deoxygenated hemoglobin is to make an asphyxiated person appear more normal, right? That's the cyanotic person that we give high flow oxygen to that suddenly starts to pink up. Their lips become a normal color again. Their cheeks become a normal color again. Or a dead person appear more lifelike. This false unphysiologic red coloring effect in the anoxic CO poisoned tissue can therefore prevent rescuers from noticing a patient that's sick. They aren't pale, they aren't gray, they aren't blue. This couldn't possibly be a respiratory emergency. Why are they short of breath then? Why are they having this headache or this dizziness or their syncopal episode? Why are they having the seizures? So it actually ends up becoming very difficult to diagnose this clinically. Another interesting side note here, when muscle tissue is exposed to the gaseous form of carbon monoxide, it turns the muscle tissue that cherry red, just like we were mentioning before. So there's actually a commercial use for carbon monoxide even today in meat processing plants where they use a combination of carbon dioxide and nitrogen and carbon monoxide in vacuum packing the meat inside of those containers. The carbon monoxide in that small concentration, it binds with the outermost layer of muscle tissue in the meat and it gives it a bright red appearance instead of gray or brown appearances of raw meat that was harvested some time ago. And this process of like the meat turning brown, that's called oxidative browning. Um, that slow oxidation of the meat is the number one consumer related rejection of why people don't buy the meat products and then they go to waste inside of markets. So on the commercial side, if it doesn't look good, people won't eat it. So they developed this process of preparing and packaging the meat using this combination of carbon monoxide to brighten up the meat, to make it look fresher, to make it look Red, uh, to make it look like it is uh, fresh and ready to go. And it's actually um, carbon monoxide that is doing that as a meat coloration inside of the packaging. Anyways, back to the medical side of things. The clinical presentation of carbon monoxide poisoning is the result of its underlying systemic toxicity. Its effects are caused not only by impaired oxygen delivery, but also by disrupting oxygen utilization and respiration at the cellular level, particularly in high oxygen demand organs like the heart, the brain, things that are constantly using that oxygen and converting it over into CO2, lactic acid, water, they need tons of oxygen. So if I'm depriving those things of oxygen, immediately those systems begin to suffer from it. Now remember that this carbon monoxide is bound to the hemoglobin. So it doesn't matter how much I breathe in and out, this CO is still bound to my cells. And as that oxygen tries to compete with that receptor site, the CO is gonna just grip on tighter. So this patient, they may be able to ventilate really, really well. However, they're gonna respirate really poorly because even though I'm shoveling tons of oxygen into my lungs to try to get it to try to bind to these cells, the CO is preventing it from happening. They're breathing hard. They're 
definitely pushing a lot of volume in and out of their lungs, but that CO is taking up those receptor sites. And as that uh, blood cell travels back to the heart and the heart is expecting truckloads of oxygen dumping off there to feed those tissues, they're not getting anything. And the CO2 levels just keep increasing and increasing. And the acidosis levels keep increasing and increasing. And these tissues become hypoxic. And they have to turn to things like anaerobic metabolism to try to keep themselves running, which produces even more nasty byproducts, even more acidosis byproducts and ketones. So as we discussed earlier, the symptoms of severe CO poisoning include malaise, shortness of breath, headache, nausea, chest pain, irritability, difficulty walking, altered mental status, other neurologic symptoms like losses of consciousness, coma, death. I mean, you might even have like some precursor signs like tachycardia. Uh, You might see the tachypnea, the hypotension, various other neurologic findings like memory and cognitive and sensory disturbances. You're going to see a sign of what looks like metabolic acidosis where you throw them on capnography and this person is ventilating great and they're staying at like 60 on their ETCO2 readings. And it doesn't get better with ventilation, right? Because all of the cells are still having to turn to anaerobic metabolism to keep themselves alive. You might see cardiac arrhythmias. You might see the developing uh, STEMI that's happening here, except that it's not being caused by some sort of a thrombus. It's being caused simply because the patient is hypoxic, globally hypoxic. Um, You might even see non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Um, You might see organ system failure. These symptoms are not really unique. They're so broad spectrum. It puts us down the rabbit hole on so many different possible things, and yet the patient looks pink. The patient looks like they're oxygenating well. And this leads us down so many confusing pathways. The true key here is actually a focused history taking, a discussion about the patient's living space, the areas where they may have been exposed. Maybe they're living in a vehicle and their tailpipe over the course of the night, they left the vehicle running to try to keep themselves warm. And they were in a non-ventilated area like a parking garage, or perhaps their tailpipe um, got partially blocked by litter or mud. Um, Or in a previous county where I used to work, people would park their vehicle and puff their vehicle to try to warm up and the snow would actually fall and drift up and start backing up into the car because the snow drift would get so deep around the tailpipe. You might want to talk to other, see if other people might have been affected with similar issues. This may not even necessarily be people inside of the same room. If they are in a communal living environment or if they're in uh, perhaps a townhome, there may be other people nearby that are having the carbon monoxide leak, but it's now entering into adjacent units in like a duplex. Gas readings taken by the fire department then can perhaps be really, really important to tell us if there's an elevated level of carbon monoxide in the area. As the clinician taking this sort of a history and we look at these broad spectrum complaints that these patients might be having without some sort of a bedside test to know whether or not this patient has CO poisoning, we need to be suspicious that it is a possibility. And without a finger test that we're about to get to and get to and talk about here in just a bit, it, the, the only real other diagnosis on this outside of like the clinical presentation in the history is going to be a blood draw. 
to look to see what is the concentration of carboxyhemoglobin that this patient actually has. Um, and the other big red flag here to throw in this is if you start seeing multiple patients with similar complaints, that's kind of the slam dunk here. CO, if there's more people inside of the area, they all are going to start having that same level of complaint. And that should be one of the biggest signs when we're reading our CAD notes. If there's multiple people that are complaining about this issue of headache, shortness of breath, tachypnea, we're starting to see this. This is a scene safety issue. We need to make sure that we are insulating ourselves from being exposed to this. And things like N95s and P100s, they do not filter carbon monoxide. They do not prevent us from getting carbon monoxide poisoning. The only way to enter into these sorts of IDLHs, your own self-contained breathing apparatus. That is it. Otherwise, you are gonna become another patient and it is a silent killer. You can't see it. You can't smell it. It doesn't taste like the methylmercaptum um, or it doesn't smell like the methylmercaptum that comes out of a natural gas emergency. That is added to the natural gas that makes it smell like rotten eggs. CO does not have that. A natural gas emergency is different than a CO emergency. CO is eliminated from the body through oxygenation and to a lesser degree, ventilation. Now that's a really important concept to, to think about here. The way that we remove CO from our body is through competitive oxygenation, over-oxygenation, delivery of so much oxygen that these receptor sites are being bombarded who are trying to now take away that receptor site from the carbon, or carbon monoxide and deliver oxygen where it needs to go. A good analogy of this is on a typical playing field where you have carbon monoxide versus um, oxygen. And if we're thinking about this in like a, um, a soccer stadium, right? If I have carbon monoxide, these are the professional major league soccer players that are out there that can uh, take that ball away from anyone and absolutely run that field. And oxygen, yeah, maybe they know kind of know how to play the game, but they're not professionals. And they're out there trying to compete with these comp professional major league soccer players. Well, the way that we could stack the deck and make the underdog team be able to compete a bit more with these professional soccer players is by increasing the number of players that they have on the field. If it was 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1, even the major league soccer players would have a really hard time controlling the ball and figuring out where it was going to go and taking it away from the other receptor sites. And it's through this competitive nature, through this competition for that receptor site, by using oxygen's affinity for hemoglobin and competing with carbon monoxide's affinity for that hemoglobin, that we're going to bump it off of the receptor site and get the oxygen back to where it needs to go. So CO is eliminated through that competitive oxygenation and with that to a lesser degree the ventilation. Once it's been bumped off I can breathe out that carbon monoxide and get it out of my system and get it away from me. If the patient is on room air the half-life of carbon monoxide on a uh, hemoglobin receptor site is 300 minutes. That's five hours that this CO could potentially be bound if the only type of uh, competitive nature that CO has is ambient room air oxygen, right around 21%. 
If the patient is on a non-rebreather though, with high flow oxygen, 15 liters per minute, this five hour mark is now reduced down to 90 minutes, right? An hour and a half because we've added more non-professional soccer players onto the field to compete with these major league soccer players and compete with them in such a way that there's just tons of non-professionals out there trying to take the ball away and control the ball and bump these carbon monoxide players off the field. Now, there's another treatment here, hyperbaric oxygenation. right? So this is a patient who is taken to a facility that has a hyperbaric chamber they're placed inside of this sealed uh, chamber. Usually it's you know, a small room. And inside of this chamber, the atmospheric pressure is increased. And it's actually increased with high concentration oxygen. And they end up pumping this 100% oxygen rich environment in there. And they take it up to three atmospheres of pressure. That's taking all of those oxygen molecules and it's pushing them three times closer together. It's a much thicker oxygen environment now that they're in. The patient breathes that in and that partial pressure is translated all the way down into your lung tissues. This super like soupy mixture of oxygen is breathed in and now all of that hyper concentrated oxygen is able to cross over into your bloodstream. This is like taking that same soccer analogy and dumping the entire stadium of potential uh, visitors who are there, dumping them on the field and having the same number of major league soccer players there to compete with. There's just no room now to actually be able to run this game in any sort of a way that isn't in the advantage of everyone else against the MLS team who's there. So under hyperbaric oxygen concentrations and with that increase in atmospheric pressure, the half-life now of carbon monoxide is 30 minutes. So if we take this patient that has all of this CO that's bound to their hemoglobin and we put them in a hyperbaric oxygen environment, we are going to reverse the effects of the CO very, very quickly, right? And until we actually reverse that, it doesn't really matter how much I ventilate that patient, right? Until I actually start to bump this CO off of the receptor sites there, the tissues are gonna remain hypoxic. They're gonna remain under stress. They're gonna have to go back to anaerobic metabolism to try to keep themselves alive. So that's why it's so important that we even start these patients on high flow oxygen, even via a non-rebreather. Hyperbaric oxygen is the treatment of choice for pregnant women even if they are less severely poisoned. Hyperbaric oxygen is safe to administer as part of a more aggressive role in treating pregnant women. Remember that one of the biggest risk factors to the unborn is gonna be insults in oxygenation level to that baby. And remember that baby depends on mom's respiratory function to be able to deliver oxygenated blood to the placenta and remove the CO2 from the placenta, right? So if I'm not actually getting oxygen to the placenta, the placenta cannot get oxygenated blood to the fetus. And that fetus does not have the same levels of protective layers that mom has uh, in place for them. So aggressive oxygen treatments, especially for those who are pregnant, um, should be in the back of everybody's minds. Now looking at our own protocols, right? Our protocols are pretty straightforward with this. 
Let's say we contact someone, we think that this patient has a potential for carbon monoxide exposure. The first thing that we want to do is we want to try to detect whether or not this patient has had carbon monoxide um, event. Now, if our history suggests it, that's great. We can start transporting this patient and looking at the clinical signs and the things that they're reporting to us as being clinically significant. We also have an ACE in our back pocket here, and that's the LifePak 15 that's made by Physio. Our pulse oximeter monitors actually can detect CO in the patient's blood, and it just uses wavelength uh, detection the same way that it does with pulse oximetry. Detecting the SPCO levels in a patient is as simple as putting on the uh, finger probe. Now it's automatically going to be checking the CO levels that are there and if it detects levels that are um, at 10% or above it's going to flash an alert at you. What you're going to see is you're going to see where normally the SpO2 is a blue number uh, that's uh, appearing on your cardiac monitor. You're instead going to see an orange number and you're going to see this symbol that says greater than 10. Um, on that monitor there, or it's going to show you a CO level that's going to be repetitively flashing and an alarm is going to go off there. If you wanted to manually check this, what you can do is make sure the pulse oximeter is on and make sure that pulse oximeter has a good repeating pleth wave over and over and over again, something that you can trust. This means that the hands have to be nice and warm, you have to have good blood flow to that extremity. Once you know you have a good pleth wave there, Take that roll dial on your LifePak 15 and roll it all the way over there to the um, SPO2, the pulse oximeter repeating number score that's on the screen. And you'll notice as you turn that dial, the field will change that you're selecting. So once you get on over there to the SPO2, click in that dial. You'll feel the click as it happens. And then you can change the parameter that it's showing on the screen between SPO2 and SPCO change it over to SPCO and you will see the monitor now showing you whatever it is detecting as far as the percentage of CO that's inside of that person's uh, body. Now, um, normal range for non-smoking humans is between zero and 5%. Asymptomatic, that's a normal physiologic range depending on what kind of things they've been around, what kind of things they may have been uh, exposed with. However, um, now talking about people who routinely smoke cigarettes, that is a combustion of carbon. It's burned and they inhale it. Now that's actually burning and producing carbon monoxide. It goes into their bloodstream. And so uh, smokers can have a normal functional range for themselves between zero and 10%, right? And a lot of times they're not gonna have uh, symptoms with that. So don't be surprised if someone who does have a smoking history does have the beginnings of an elevated CO level. However, between 10% and 15%, this is considered an abnormal level. It may not have any symptoms associated with it and isn't necessarily considered a CO poisoning at this level. But Patients that already have underlying pathophysiology, people who are already struggling with COPD or have a weak heart or have a partial blockage in their heart, and now we have this 10 to 15% abnormal level that we're seeing on that CO, that's somebody that we might wanna start influencing with high flow oxygen to try to compete for those receptor sites until more definitive tests can be done. 
Now, if your monitor is popping anything over 15%, this is considered a carbon monoxide poisoning event. And these patients are at that significant risk of having problems. Remember earlier, we were talking about patients who have a CO level 25 to 30%. These are patients that need hyperbaric chamber administration. Now we've discussed the LifePak 15's ability to be able to scan for carbon monoxide, but something else that's really important to point out here is that think about what's going on with this patient. We have oxygen that is bound to hemoglobin, and when that process happens, we're able to measure that with pulse oximetry, right? And so as I'm breathing, I have oxygen, it binds to my hemoglobin here. It reflects a certain type of refractivity going of that light going through my finger. The probe kind of picks it up and I end up getting a reading back on that. But the problem with CO is that I'm mimicking that mechanism. I'm binding something to hemoglobin. I'm binding carbon monoxide to hemoglobin. And therefore, my pulse oximetry scores might be perfectly normal. They might actually be 100%. This patient may have perfectly normal oximetry levels and be completely hypoxic. I might have false readings on my pulse oximeter. So that even goes to show even more about this cherry red skin or this normal pallor of the patient's skin along with normal pulse oximetry scores giving us this false sense of security, but the patient is still exhibiting signs of shortness of breath, dyspnea, air hunger. They're having seizures or they're having signs that this patient is decompensating or in respiratory distress, but even their lung sounds are a little bit clear. So even that further muddies the water that our pulse oximetry scores with CO patients are untrustworthy. And we need to still manage that patient by giving them 100% oxygen. Now inside of our protocols here, this is protocol 10.140, um, some of the notes that we have here on uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, pretty straightforward. If we see this, high flow oxygen, high flow O2, non-rebreather, rapid transport. And now we need to start thinking about what do their symptoms look like here? We need to take this patient to the most appropriate place. Now here in Salem, we have a very comprehensive hospital and they do all of our emergency medical services responses. So here's a patient who's sick. Here's a patient who needs immediate access to um, a higher level of care. In almost every regard, this is going to be us turning and burning and going towards Salem Hospital and letting, us, letting them know that we have a patient that we suspect to be a carbon monoxide sort of an event. Um, however, why did that patient get that carbon monoxide in the first place? Now we start getting over here into the later parts of the protocol where there's a flow sheet and it talks about a few other possible complications as well as CO that we should probably start to consider. First off, was that carbon monoxide also involved with burning? And was it also involved with potential trauma, right? And it's helping us to kind of differentiate on this hierarchy about what kind of a resource center does this patient need to go to? 
If this patient was in, let's say, a structure fire, guaranteed they're going to have carbon monoxide in their body because carbon monoxide is a byproduct of combustion. It is a byproduct of burning carbon. Now we're in a structure fire. There's a lot of fuel burning. There's a lot of really nasty gases that are involved with that. Also to be included with that is cyanide. One more big problem that we need to kind of deal with with this. However, um, to kind of bring it back on topic, if the patient is burned, and they have carbon monoxide poisoning, the priority is, is that they need to go to a burn center. If the patient has trauma and burns and they have carbon monoxide, they need to go to a trauma center, right? If this patient just has carbon monoxide poisoning but doesn't have any burns and doesn't have any other associated trauma, they need to go to a hyperbaric center. In our area here, we don't have immediate access to a hyperbaric chamber, which is why in Salem, Oregon, we need to go to definitive medical care quickly because then that patient might be able to be transported by air or by CCT ground ambulance to one of these uh, hyperbaric chambers, whichever hyperbaric chamber might actually be available and be ready and waiting for that patient to arrive. In the meantime, you know, clinical blood draws can occur and known levels of carboxyhemoglobin can be detected. The patient can be placed on aggressive oxygen therapy. And then lastly, this patient really is, you know, super sick. There might be other things that this patient needs. Go back to that patient who might potentially have been in a structure fire. You know, the combustion of plastics, they release some pretty nasty chemicals. And one of those is cyanide. Um, so along with this, you know, yes, we're gonna be dealing with the CO problem. Yes, we might be dealing with burns. We might be dealing with airway burns. Now we have this cyanide in there directly working against our ability to respirate at the cellular level. That patient might actually need administration of a cyano kit. Dr. Clothier weighed in on this subject and the message that he wanted to make sure that you know, was very clear was that delivering 100% oxygen is the key towards treating carbon monoxide. And even though CO poisonings are on the more rare side, there are some very specific symptoms that we might see in the field outside of that deoxygenation sort of a problem that we're gonna combat with high flow oxygen. We also should be looking for seizure activity. That's gonna be a sign of a more critical poisoning event. And the answer to treating those seizures is gonna be with a benzodiazepine, like Valium, like Versed, like Ativan. Also, when we're looking at this patient, they might be exhibiting signs of shock, more specifically with an elevated pulse rate and a compensated or decompensating blood pressure. So hypotension here. And we wanna fill that container back up. So we wanna administer IV fluids and we wanna be strongly considering vasopressors. So something like push dose epi needs to be in the back of our mind here to help bump and support that patient's blood pressure um, as you know they're dealing with these symptoms. Following ACLS is always just a great golden standard rule um, when we're looking at this. If it's too fast, slow them down. If they're too slow, speed them up. Support the blood pressure, support the perfusion efforts that are going on with this patient. And once again, just rehashing this, we really need to consider any other things that they might have been exposed to. If it was CO from a running motor, well, that's one thing. But if it was CO from a patient who was coming from a structure fire, cyanide toxicity is definitely going to be something we want to 
think about here. So cyano kits or sodium theosulfate um, are going to be the answers for that. And we need to be identifying uh, those risk factors so the resources can be uh, prepared. Other things that uh, Dr. Clothier was mentioning was that it's a rarity for um you know, hyperbaric chambers uh, to even need to be utilized because typically with the identification of this high flow oxygen and supportive care, it's a matter of hours before these patients start to feel better and before uh, we can really start to curbside uh, some of the problems that are associated with CO poisoning. But it does come down to identification. It comes down to early access to treatment. And for us here in town, uh, at least with Salem, that access is going to be immediate immediate urgent transport to Salem Hospital where we have all of the bells and whistles to be able to deal with this and access to transfer that patient out very, very quickly to a hyperbaric chamber if it's warranted. So in general, this is something we need to keep in the back of our minds. In the winter seasons, as people are using their flues and their chimneys a little bit more, as they're using uh, their heaters a little bit more, um, this is perhaps where people are gonna discover that they haven't been doing regular maintenance on those systems. Or as people, perhaps displaced individuals, are living in places and they're attempting to use cooking stoves inside of like tents, or if they're using heaters, um, inside of tents that use combustion as their primary source of heat versus like an electric heater or something like that. There are potentials here for carbon monoxide. And in the cold months is usually when we see these things start to kick up. And also put it in the back of your mind that in the midst of disasters where the infrastructure and the power grids go out and people start firing up their generators so that they can run their microwave or they can attempt to communicate or charge their cell phone or um, run their lights or their heaters or something like that inside of a building, all of those generators produce carbon monoxide as part of their byproduct of that in combustion engine kicking over and over and over. If these generators aren't put at least 20 feet away from a structure and the wind is blowing and that CO is coming right back into the building, you can't smell it. You can't taste it. You can't even determine if it's there until you start getting symptomatic. If we're seeing patients that have these sorts of symptoms, and we're suspecting CO, are you safe where you're at? Is this scene even safe to go into? Is this scene somewhere where we need to be? Is it possible to remove these patients out to a safe, breathable environment? Remember environments that pose um, immediate risk towards life or that uh, immediate risk towards your own health. These types of environments, we might walk right into them because we don't know what's going on yet. So keep your eyes aware, keep your head on a swivel, keep thinking about what's going on with all of this and be suspicious about CO. I encourage each and every one of you to go home, check your detectors, make sure you have a carbon monoxide detector in your house and smoke detectors, that they have batteries, that you've hit that test button every now and then, and that they're in the right place, and that you've discussed with your family how to evacuate. If your smoke detectors or your CO detector are sounding their alarm inside of your house. Thank you again for your time and for listening to this presentation here today. I really hope that through trainings like this, we can raise some awareness and we can get prevention measures out into the community, that you can also be an advocate and that 
you know, perhaps we could increase awareness about carbon monoxide and increase prevention of accidental death or injury from carbon monoxide poisoning. Hello everyone, it's Bianca again. I've been invited back to give another heart-to-heart talk. The topic I would like to discuss with all of you today is how to talk to your patient. As EMS providers, we've all had those moments where we're in the back with the patients and, well, that awkward silence rears its ugly head. So, our comfort zone goes straight back to our tablets. We have a chart to write. We might as well use the silence to type, right? It may be productive for you, but our patient's still suffering. They called you because they're having a bad day, possibly the worst day in their life. Rarely do our patients wake up in the morning and think, boy, I'm bored. Maybe I should call an ambulance. Nobody wants to spend hours in the ED getting poked, prodded, and questioned. So what do we do with that inevitable silence we all encounter? I read this great article on EMS World. It was written by Barry Bettelheimer. He is a university professor, works on the rescue squad in New Jersey, and is an instructor at the National Center for Homeland Security and Preparedness in New York. He wrote this article called The Lost Art of Talking to Patients. Barry came up with a mnemonic to help providers fill in that silence. He calls it the TAP ALE. T-A-P-A-L-E. The T stands for tell me. This is a great lead-in to the conversation. Examples of tell me conversations would be, tell me how long you've lived here. Tell me something you like to do for fun. Tell me about the photo in your apartment. This tell me section line of questioning provides an open-ended question that your patients can then fill in and respond further. The A stands for active listening. This shows your patient that you're engaged. This includes eye contact, nodding, leaning forward, or saying words like, I see, I understand. This means that in order to active listen, you can't just hide behind your tablet the whole time you're gonna have to actually look up and engage, either with your body language, with your speech, or both. The next letter is P. P stands for patience. So some of our patients may be hard of hearing. Some of them may have some sort of memory issues. Show them respect by giving them the time to answer. For some of us that are younger, We're used to very rapid responses to our questions. We want to move on to our next question. For some of our older patients, they may need a little extra time. They need some time to be able to understand and internalize the question that we've asked, come up with an answer, and then be able to articulate this answer. For some people, it may take 30 seconds, it may take 45 seconds, it may even take a minute for them to respond to some of these questions. So patience is a very key factor when we're listening actively and trying to interpret what our uh, patient's responses are. The A stands for avoid judgments and jargon. When your patients are sharing information, 
don't judge them on their decisions. It may be a little bit funny sometimes when uh, some patients have gotten themselves into some sticky circumstances that involves our response, but try not to judge them. Chances are they're already judging themselves pretty harshly. And just as much with any other conversation or formal conversation you're having with people, avoid politics and religion. There's no need to transfer a patient's fear that they're already experiencing into agitation. This also goes along the lines of uh, jargon or kind of code words that we may use. We may not think ALS, BLS, airway protection, that kind of stuff that we say on a normal basis. Our patients may not be able to interpret like a we're code four, it's a 10-4 or something like that. So try to avoid those kind of words um, when speaking to our patients. The C is curiosity. You should want to know more about your patient, their medical history, their allergies, the socioeconomic state, if they're homeless. Maybe you can provide resources to warming shelters. Sometimes it's important to know if you're on a domestic, are they safe at home? Do they have somewhere to go after the hospital? But be curious about your patient. Sometimes going and asking a couple of questions may lead to a completely different problem that we had no idea what was going on, that the patient just recently decided to share. And the last letter is E, which is empathy. You may be the person that has the most one-on-one -on -one conversation with them that day. Be a good ear. Listen to their fears, their apprehensions, their worries. Most of the time, the patient just wants to be heard. Take the opportunity during your transport to talk to your patient. Get to know them for the little time you have together. Who knows? Maybe you'll learn something new or hear a great story. It's up to you. Thank you guys. I hope you guys have a safe shift. For this month's Spotlight Prescription Medication, I wanted to focus this month on Warfarin, or Coumadin, uh, the blood thinning medication that we're commonly putting into patients' charts that also is associated with medical history that involves blood clots, or problems with blood clotting, or even preventing blood clots from happening in the future. So Coumadin is an anticoagulant. It's a blood thinner, but you know it doesn't actually change the viscosity of your blood, so it doesn't make it more thin, uh, like the difference between you know water and perhaps an oil, right? That would be the viscosity of the blood. It's actually used as a bit of a misnomer there. It makes it so that we don't clot as easily. It decreases our ability to form a clot in some very specific situations, and that can be advantageous. It also can hinder us in some ways, like that patient who's taking an anticoagulant who then suffers a car accident or suffers some sort of a internal injury. It puts them at risk for bleeding and it puts them at risk for not being able to control their own bleeding by forming a clot. You know, something as simple as cutting your face while you're shaving becomes a much different sort of an experience when you're taking Coumadin on a daily basis. So. I thought this was a medication that maybe we could extrapolate on a little bit, learn some more about it. So uh, doing some research on this, looking at uh, warfarin, one thing that jumped out at me was where warfarin came from. It's actually been around a pretty long time. In the early 1920s, 
There was a recognized problem in the northern United States, I think it was specifically right around Wisconsin, where there was a veterinary pathologist who was investigating a problem where 21 out of 22 cows suddenly died while undergoing what are pretty routine procedures for them. A rancher was dehorning the cows and was castrating the uh, cows and the cows wouldn't stop bleeding. In fact, 21 out of 22 of this rancher's cows died. Now, this veterinary pathologist started looking at this and started asking the question, well, why did this happen? What was going on? And they noticed that the rancher was feeding these cows sweet clover, this uh, kind of a hay mixture there. But this particular sweet clover was really moldy. And after a while of doing some extracts on that, it turns out that this fungus was actually metabolizing something inside of the sweet clover and something that is found in like cut grass and is found in actually quite a bit of plant matter like licorice and lavender and other plant species like that. And it's uh, this presence of something called coumarin. And after this coumarin was digested by this fungus in a very specific way, it actually denatures it into a uh, something called dicumarol, which is a pretty profound anticoagulant. Now, after a course of studying this and doing some studies with other animals and noticing that any mammal that they were putting this into uh, had profound bleeding issues, and not only that, but even some of them ended up dying, they actually ended up formulating this into a very potent rodent poison. And this rat poison that uh, they started using back in 1940, uh, this rat poison was then engineered and put out into circulation as a very potent rodenticide. And even in some places in Peru, they were ending up using this rodenticide dicumarol and suspending it inside of petroleum jelly. And they would capture the vampire bats that were in colonies down there. And they would cover the vampire bats with this dicumarol petroleum jelly, which would then fly back to its colony. And other bats would groom each other. They would get this dicumarol into their system and they would die off. So now we have to take this on over towards how did this become a medication? And interestingly, in 1951, there was an army soldier attempted uh, committing suicide by ingesting this rat poison and ingested quite a bit of it and was treated at the Naval Hospital with vitamin K, which was already known to be a pretty specific antidote for this coumarin or this dicumarol being used as the rat poison. So they treated this individual with vitamin K and it did very well. They were able to reverse effects of the Coumadin and the individual survived and they kind of used that as a benchmark to push this out as a potential medication from that point on and now over the course of the next uh, few years they studied this in people who might need anticoagulation and President Dwight Eisenhower ended up being somebody who was on this medication in its early phases to help treat him after having a heart attack so now fast forward to where we are here today you know, this medication that started out as, you know, a pesticide actually has been studied and recognized to have some benefits towards patients who form clots. 
The name warfarin actually comes from the acronym WARF, which stands for the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. And then the ending of ARIN is a link back to the substance that was found in the sweet feed, the coumarin. So indications include patients who have artificial heart valves, patients who have a history of deep vein thrombosis. So that's gonna be a blood clot inside of a vein. You typically are gonna see this inside of the legs or uh, like in the knees, especially in patients that have a history of having like a sedentary lifestyle or somebody who's recently sedentary, maybe laying in a bed, perhaps because of an injury or surgery, that sort of a thing. Another indication is pulmonary embolus. So clots end up forming and then traveling and kind of getting stuck inside of the capillary net inside of the lungs. And this can inhibit blood flow. This can inhibit oxygen uh, transfer. This can even really make you back up fluid in certain ways with a PE. It's also used in antiphospholipid syndrome, which is an autoimmune hypercoagulable state caused by antiphospholipid antibodies. Take Humidin on a daily basis, and after about three days of starting this medication, this is called warfarinization, that patient ends up becoming therapeutic, and even if they were to immediately stop that medication at that point, the effects of this med would last for like another five days, and it specifically inactivates vitamin K. Warfarin decreases blood clotting by blocking an enzyme called vitamin K epoxide reductase that reactivates vitamin K. Now vitamin K is super important in clotting factor and actually affects factor two, factor seven, factor nine, and factor 10. And what this ends up looking like here is as the Coumadin really starts to take effect, certain factors inside of your blood that are waiting to react to signals that tells them to start promoting a clot, they become inactivated. This is where you end up getting this slow uptake of decreased coagulation potential, but that takes a few days for that whole entire thing to happen. Now, our discussion about Coumadin here today actually brings up a good platform here to address something, maybe a little bit of some misunderstanding, that not all anticoagulants are equal. And not only that, but there's two different real categories here that we need to know about. One is anticoagulants. You know, these are those blood thinning medications. This is your medications like Coumadin and heparin, but there's other anticoagulants as well that are like Coumadin and heparin that literally interrupt and work against the formation of a clot, anticoagulation. A couple other examples of this is apixaban, which is Eliquis, or dabigraton, which is Pradaxa, or rivaroxaban, which is Xarelto, idoxaban, which is Savasia. Now the other category here are antiplatelets, and these are really common medications, and we know that people who are taking antiplatelets are trying to use these medications so that they don't form a clot. But as the name antiplatelet suggests, these medications specifically work against platelets' ability to stick together or to bind together. And that's different than an anticoagulant, which is interrupting the clotting cascade. Antiplatelets like aspirin, like clopidogrel, which is Plavix, or Prosegrel, or, or Ticagrelor. 
which is also known as Berlinta. These are all antiplatelets, and sometimes they're even used in conjunction with one another so that a patient doesn't have to be on an anticoagulant. One common setup like that is gonna be a patient who's taking Plavix and aspirin specifically to help them not form clots on like atherosclerotic tissue or in like cardiac stents that are in place. Antiplatelets make platelet aggregation much more difficult to occur. Platelets try to aggregate on the broken blood vessel by sending out signals to other platelets, asking them to come and to join this platelet plug. And aspirin specifically blocks those signals from going out to call more platelets to the area. And then medications like Plavix affect each of the platelets individually as it blocks a bridge that can be formed between different platelets that starts stringing these platelets together and strengthening that plug as it occurs on top of the uh, vessel wall. Anticoagulants act completely differently. They actually work on the clotting factors and how those clotting factors uh, eventually promote that clotting cascade all the way down to prothrombin being turned into thrombin, which then turns fibrinogen into fibrin, which creates this fibrous mesh that sticks to all of these platelets into the vessel walls and to other uh, red blood cells and white blood cells in the area and actually makes that clot. So these anticoagulants, they're not really working on the platelets, they're working on the body's ability to strengthen that clot. That's why it's so important to describe the difference between these two as completely different in their functionality. A patient may take an antiplatelet, which once again is looking at how those cells get in and start actually forming the plug. Maybe even with this description, you might start seeing why it's so important to give aspirin to patients who currently have a heart attack that's developing, especially a heart attack that is developing because of a blood clot that's formed inside of a coronary artery. That blood clot, which is uh, platelets that are beginning to aggregate and collect and mound up and starting to restrict or block off that artery, those platelets are sending out signals to one another, asking for more platelets to join the plug and more platelets to aggregate on top of this site and continuing to grow. We administer aspirin to that uh, patient and we start suppressing the platelet aggregation on top of each other inside of that artery. And that's really important when we start talking about just general maintenance of hardware inside of vessels and the activation of that intrinsic pathway with the initial platelet response to the plug that's there. We don't want that reacting to hardware um, or perhaps just like fractured cholesterol on the inside of the vessels. We want that to be harder to occur so that platelet aggregation doesn't randomly occur and cause a heart attack or cause a stroke. However, in patients that you know are forming a lot of clots or in patients that uh, you know are at a much higher risk of heart attack or stroke uh, they might need that next uh, level which is anticoagulation which is the inactivation of the clotting factors 
that allow the body to form a clot in the first place. Let's look specifically at atrial fibrillation because a lot of times you're gonna see someone with a history of AFib on a blood thinner medication to try to affect that. Atrial fibrillation is a quivering of the atria and you kind of have desynchronous movement even of those atria where you don't necessarily have one pacemaker that is driving the depolarization and contractile wave of the atria, like what would normally come from the SA node or that sinoatrial node, you end up having this quivering effect that happens with the atria and they're not actually squeezing and pumping out synchronously every single heartbeat and ejecting their blood down into the ventricles, which actually means that as the blood passively fills those atria and passively fills down into the ventricles, it can become trapped and it can become stagnant up inside of the papillary muscles and up inside of the folds of the atria. Now, eventually something might happen where one of those clots there on the inside from the stagnant blood can actually break off. That might be because you have organized contractions of the atria that are now uh, forcing and moving those clots. That could happen from something as simple as change of position or change of gravity or maybe a trip and fall sort of an event. Basically, any time those clots could potentially break off and trap to the brain, to the lungs, to the legs, to the heart itself, depending on which side it's coming from. And we describe those events as a stroke, as a heart attack, as a pulmonary embolus, maybe even as a arterial occlusion or maybe a deep vein thrombosis. It's just uh, a ticking time bomb and it's very unpredictable about when that can happen. So this patient needs to be on something that prevents those clots from forming. It needs to be on something that makes that blood, even if it ends up being stagnant, less likely of forming a clot. So this patient who has atrial fibrillation, they might be on a rate control drug like Cartizam or Digoxin. However, they also need to be on something that is an anticoagulant. So Coumadin is that example here, or perhaps Eliquis is another example. One of the key differences between Coumadin and Eliquis is the patient on Coumadin actually has to go and have routine blood draws to check what's called their INR, right? And that's actually known as the International Normalized Ratio. This INR test that the patient is getting is a test that takes blood and it exposes it to a tissue factor that activates its extrinsic pathway of coagulation. It forces it to try to react to the uh, signals that tells us that there has been a insult to a blood vessel or towards the tissue. So the INR is typically used to monitor patients on warfarin and is related to that oral coagulation therapy like Coumadin. And the normal range for a healthy person not using Coumadin is 0.8 to 1.2. And for people on warfarin therapy, an INR of 2.0 to 3.0 is usually the targeted range that they're shooting for. Although the targeted INR may be higher in other potential situations, such as like a mechanical heart valve or something that causes a lot of turbulence inside of the blood and may you know, have a higher clotting ratio associated with it. If the INR is outside of that range, meaning that it's much higher, a high INR indicates a higher risk of bleeding. So anyways, back on to target here. Patients that are taking Coumadin have to have a regular INR check to be sure that the dose that they're taking is accurate for them. If they're taking too much, 
obviously they're going to be at even worse risk of bleeding. If they're not taking enough, then uh, they're not actually anticoagulated and that patient runs the risk of running a stroke or a heart attack. Some of the things that affect an INR rate and why it's kind of hard to dial in somebody's um, you know, INR or try to become really steadily therapeutic with the same dose of Coumadin all the time without all of the different blood draws and those sorts of things is that you know, patients have a tendency to eat things um, that also contain high levels of vitamin K. So things like green leafy vegetables or things like cabbage and broccoli and lettuce and cilantro and dill um, all of these things have high amounts of uh, vitamin K. Even some vegetable oils have high amounts of vitamin K inside of it. And we know that vitamin K is actually the antidote for a potential Coumadin overdose. Or if a patient who's on Coumadin needs to be reversed in the case of like surgery or in the case of like, um, like a life-threatening bleed that needs to be arrested or that needs to be kind of brought under control, uh, they will end up administering vitamin K in the hospital potentially to try to bring that patient's uh, clotting uh, cascade back online and to kind of reactivate um, the potential here for someone who's at risk of bleeding. Other potential um, treatments for a potential overdose of Coumadin outside of vitamin K, prothrombin complex concentrate or PCC or a dose of fresh frozen plasma, FFP. But if I'm eating a lot of these vegetables that is giving me vitamin K, um, if I'm doing things like not controlling my diet, it's potentially that I'm gonna start having a struggle with managing my INR levels. And it's gonna be a fluctuation with that about taking a little bit more or taking a little bit less. Um, and your doctor is gonna help you kind of guide those things back into place. So what does that look like for us? We're looking at somebody uh, who perhaps has fallen down and we look at their medical history and sure enough, right there on their medical history, it says atrial fibrillation. I should now be very concerned that a patient who's fallen with atrial fibrillation probably has a blood thinner on board and I should be doing some extra questions and some extra thought about hey, are you really sure you're not taking any sort of a blood thinner? You have AFib, and those two kind of go hand in hand together. And we know that patients who fall down, especially ones that hit their head um, or who might be at uh, risk of having internal injury, we need to be hyper suspicious and getting them to definitive medical care. Something else to consider when patients are starting or are taking Coumadin is whether or not they have any history of gastrointestinal bleeding. This type of bleeding is called occult bleeding. This is bleeding that occurs typically in the gastrointestinal tract that happens in such a way that it's unseen or unnoticed by the patient. It's not visible in stool, it's not visible in feces, but that patient is bleeding a small amount every single day. So that term is called occult bleeding. And uh, these sorts of like bleeds uh, can lead to like serious anemias and serious problems of loss of red blood cells. Especially if I'm taking a medication like Coumadin, sometimes if I'm taking something like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, something like naproxen or ibuprofen to try to affect you know aches and pains or functionality or reduce inflammation in my body. If I'm taking Coumadin, some of these other medications might end up leading towards like bleeding ulcers. And normally that ulcer would try to clot off, but Coumadin is going to make that a lot less likely to occur. 
Now this ulcer starts leaking readily. A small amount of blood here, a small amount of blood there, but it does it over the course of time, and this patient slowly becomes anemic. It can even happen uh, more readily, where the patient suddenly has onset of black and tarry stools, and you know, evidence of like digested blood in their stool. And they call 911 for that, and they say, hey, you know what, I've started having these black and tarry stools, I'm also having these instances of like weakness and fatigue, the patient looks very white in color, or perhaps like their mucosa is very blanched and white as well, and we get the idea that this patient is short of breath and they have really low energy levels and extreme fatigue and they look like they're anemic and we start looking at their medications and we're like you're taking Coumadin have you ever had any problems with ever having any like GI bleeds or something else like that even if the answer is no there is the potential for them to develop a bleed over the course of time just by taking medications or using certain foods or having a genetic anomaly that allows them to bleed um, into their bowel. And they may not even know that sort of thing is happening. And that can even occur with, you know, someone who has like a Foley catheter. You know, that is a piece of hardware that's in place that readily gets, you know, sometimes pulled on or sometimes gets jostled or moved or, you know, impacts or scrapes the inside of the bladder and the patient can start bleeding into a Foley bag that way uh, very very quickly so you know there are some of those interactions or things that we have to kind of you know keep in the back of our mind that it may be something hidden it may be something we have to use our questions to kind of dig a little bit deeper and investigate a little bit more there is some evidence out there that folks who are taking Coumadin on a regular basis might have a higher instance of worse fractures from falls or worse fractures from uh, impacts to things. Um, some research points towards osteoporosis being a side effect of taking Coumadin for a long period of time. And they mention this as a side effect of the reduced intake of vitamin K, which, you know, people who are taking Coumadin are coached, you know, to avoid certain foods or avoid certain things. And vitamin K is a vitamin that's necessary for overall bone health. So there are more research studies kind of looking at that and looking to see if warfarin really does have a correlation there. Another rare complication that may occur early during warfarin treatment, usually within the first like eight weeks of you know starting this, is this weird thing called purple toe syndrome. And this condition is thought to result from a small deposit of cholesterol breaking loose and then causing embolisms in blood vessels in the skin of the feet, which then causes a bluish purple color that may be very painful. It's typically thought to affect the big toe, but it affects other parts of the feet as well, including the bottom of the foot, like the plantar surface there. And the occurrence of purple toe syndrome may require discontinuation of warfarin if it continues to happen or if it's affecting that patient's lifestyle. I hope this gives you a better appreciation of how complex anticoagulants can be. And even just looking at the history of how Coumadin has become one of the oldest known and oldest used anticoagulants uh, in Western medicine at this point, and how it's led to the development of other anticoagulants and the improvement of those anticoagulants to try to uh, promote less clots and the um, side effects of some of those unwanted clots. And I also hope that our discussion about antiplatelets 
has also helped to maybe clear up a little bit of the differences between somebody taking an anticoagulant and an antiplatelet. And when you meet them in the field, you might have a better understanding of what those two medications mean. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to Nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot Van Epps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falk.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.